BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, April 8th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So do you like hiking? Yeah, I love hiking. So I have this distinct memory of one particular date that my husband and I went on that helped me helped to convince me that he was actually worth spending more time with. And we went on this hike. We were in L.A. at the time, and we were both equally amazed and intrigued by the diversity of plants and animals that we came across. So we were the kind of hikers that, like, stop every few feet and, like, look down at, you know, the flora and fauna and so forth. Yeah, those are the irritating hikers on the hiking trail. Yeah, so most of the other guys (laughs) I dated in L.A. paid more attention to the assets of the female hikers on our path than the flora. (laughs) Uh, so Adam and I bonded on that and we're both aspiring naturalists. So the idea of like surveying and cataloging nature's diversity is, is something that we, we are thrilled by. So when I first came across an article about octopuses in Orion magazine, I needed to read it. Uh, I didn't really necessarily have a thing for octopuses the way some people do. Um, but the the title of the article was Deep Intellect. And it was by the popular naturalist Cy Montgomery. It's a really beautiful article. I highly recommend it. What's even more remarkable is that she wrote a book called The Soul of an Octopus that is out in paperback this week. And her book has actually shaped my thinking about human consciousness because she describes the nervous system of the octopus and the interior world of the octopus so beautifully. So wait, wait, we got to stop for a second. Octopuses, octopi, I always thought. Right. So if it was derived from the Latin, you would be correct in that it would be octopi, but it's not. It's from the Greek. So octopuses. Oh, whatever. (laughs) Potato, (laughs) potati, same thing. I like octopi. I think it sounds better. Yeah. Well, my favorite brain region is the hippocampus, and that is the hippocampi in plural. Uh, But no, it's octopuses. I think Greek, Greek and Latin people, same thing, same difference. Uh, so the, I think the natural question is, I, I've always heard that uh, octopi are really intelligent, um, especially in the context of of how, you know, and we initially said, oh, their brain is so small, but we're not taking into account their full nervous system. And I think it's fascinating that we have long, at least from the outside, 
underestimated how smart they are. Well, and also I think that there's like, uh, you know, there's a small minority of people who are passionate about octopuses, right? They, there, there is, those, there is one octopus at the Cal Academy of Sciences where I'm a member and I go often. And, uh, and, you know, there's this guy that is often there that claims to have a personal relationship with the octopus. How can he have a personal, does he have like a peg leg? Does he have that kind of personal relationship with it? <laughs> no, he's there all the time and he claims that he knows her personality, that she knows who he is. And he'll, he'll give you a running commentary of how she's feeling that day and what's going on and what she does if you stand there long enough and uh, he's be next to you. I'll really interested if Sai says anything about whether octopi have the ability to recognize like facial features or anything like that because we don't normally associate vision to creatures of the deep well that's a really good question and uh you know for a long time i was just looking at that guy thinking well he doesn't have a lot of other things to do trust your instinct (laughs) so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with sign montgomery This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Recent Inquiring Minds guest Maria Konnikova's new book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time, is on Audible. It's just one of the thousands of titles you can find there. Audible also has the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Simon Montgomery. I'm delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time, ever since I read one of your articles that brought to life the creature that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to, which of course is the octopus. So tell me first off, what got you interested in studying or, you know, meeting even (laughs) octopuses? Well, all of my work and all my work for adults and for children, I write about animals and I write about our relationship with animals. And each book is kind of a love story to the wonder of that creature. But all the books I had written hadn't touched on the category of life form that is most numerous on our planet, and that is marine invertebrates. And I called myself a naturalist, right? So I wanted to write about the octopus because here is this marine invertebrate, very common kind of life form, but we know so little about them. But one of the things we do know is that octopuses are very smart. And the intelligence of other creatures, the nature of other minds, is something that has always fascinated me. And one reason why I love to explore the lives of animals, because their minds can perceive things that ours can't. And yet, in many cases, you can be friends with one of these these creatures, and doing so enlarges your own mind and enlarges your own spirit. So that's what I sought to do by meeting and befriending my first octopus. So 
I understand that when you look into the eyes of an octopus, it almost looks as if you are looking at another human being because their eyes, you know, resemble ours so much compared to other marine invertebrates and other animals. But is that just anthropomorphizing the fact that we think they're smart? I mean, how do we know that they're actually smart? Well, this is an excellent question. And bringing up anthropomorphism is something that is great for us to discuss. But there have been laboratory experiments testing octopuses' intelligence with various different kinds of, of uh, tasks. Uh, one of them is solving the puzzle of how do I get into this jar or how do I open this particular kind of lid. And octopuses are great at this. By the way, they can also open those childproof caps that many PhDs cannot. But they also are great at navigating through mazes. And on the ocean floor, they are terrific at remembering where things are, better than many divers, many human divers. So we know in that way they're smart. We also know that they recognize and remember individual human faces. And a lot of this work has been done by my friend, Dr. Jennifer Mather at Lethbridge in Canada. She's an octopus psychologist. And you might ask, well, does she give them the uh, the inkblot test? But no, actually, <laughs> she's <laughs> she has devised a, a number of tests for octopuses, including a personality test that we can talk about more later. But uh, she and the late Roland Anderson at Seattle Aquarium uh, did an experiment with octopuses in which uh, identically dressed volunteers, human volunteers, were asked to divide themselves into two groups, and one group consistently fed their octopuses a delicious fish, and the other group consistently touched their octopuses with a bristly stick. And very quickly, the octopuses learned who was who just by looking up through the water at their faces. Hmm. And you know, how often does an octopus look up through the water at stuff versus looking through the water column? I mean, that's amazing. And if you ever laid on your back in the swimming pool looking up through the water, it's hard to figure out who's up there, but an octopus can. And interestingly, not only did they move toward their friends quickly and away from those who touched them, but often before they moved away from those who had touched them with the bristly stick, they would blast them in the face with freezing cold salt water. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how would they know that that is aversive for one thing? I mean, probably for them, you know, in the octopuses, that's that's its home. So it's like me, you know, blasting someone with air thinking that. But, but somehow they knew that this would be a negative thing. Well, they, they have been seen to do this at passing butterflies, for instance. Um, they use their funnel underwater, obviously, to jet through the sea, but they also use it almost like a leaf blower to clean away the, the junk in front of their lairs. And um, I, I think they can blast things that are offensive away underwater as well, and they know that they can use that. Uh, I don't think that they necessarily know, like, ooh, cold and wet, person doesn't like that. But they do know person doesn't like that. Mm hmm. And so that also brings me to their back to their eyes. I mean, if I had to look from underwater, 
obviously my eyes aren't adapted to see through water. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be able to tell the difference between certain faces. Um, right. So, so what do we know about how their vision is and, and how similar or different it is from our own eyes? Well, their eyes are excellent. And interestingly, their eyes evolved a, com- a completely other route than our eyes because we last shared a common ancestor with the octopus half a billion years ago. And back then, there were no eyes. Everybody was a tube. But evolution came up with their eyes and our eyes via different routes, and yet the organs are remarkably similar. Their eyesight is excellent. They're a little nearsighted, though. But other than that, the only thing that they lack that we have vision-wise, and this will really surprise people, is they can't see in color. Hmm. And yet here are these animals who can change any color they want. I mean, 50 shades of gray is a piece of cake for an octopus. They can do 50 shades of, of shiny pink and bright green and metallic colors. And yet their eyes don't seem to be able to perceive color. So how do they do that? How do they do that? Ah, Well, no one actually knows for sure, but this is fascinating. Uh, When I was writing the book, it was reported that their close relatives, squid, actually one of the common squid, sepia officinalis, had in its skin a protein associated with color vision called opsin, which brought up the idea that possibly cephalopods, you know, the group to which octopuses belong, could see with their skin. And since the book was put out, now it is known that octopuses have opsin as well. So possibly their amazing skin, as well as being able to taste, can see. And that brings me to the other amazing thing about their nervous system, which unlike ours, it's just so very different. So we essentially have a central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, that does a lot of the major heavy lifting in terms of how we are able to voluntarily move and think and feel and everything. Um, And yet the octopus doesn't really have a brain, as far as I understand, but rather multiple brains. Is that an accurate depiction. It's one way of understanding it. Um, Their brain is so unlike ours, it's almost difficult to describe it as a brain. And it's understandable that in the past, it's possible that scientists concluded they didn't have one because it so looks different from ours. Ours, as you know, is like a walnut in its shell. Well, not only do they not have the shell, the skull, but their brain wraps around the throat And instead of having four lobes, as we do, they have, and this depends on which of the 250 species or so that you're looking at and the way you count the lobes, between 50 and 75 of them. And this isn't even the weird part yet, because the weird part is that three-fifths of their neurons are not even in their brain, but in their arms, which means that an octopus's arm can be severed and just go off and do stuff on its own. They can hunt. They can change color. I mean, can you imagine? And it also appears, and this completely blows the minds of everybody except philosophers who can handle just about anything. It's possible, and it seems, that octopuses have some bold arms and some shy arms. 
What? I know. I know. Man, what <laughs> is the self like for an octopus? What is the soul like for an octopus? And it makes it all the more amazing that I have been friends with organisms like this. Real friendship in which we recognize each other and we enjoy each other's company. And I have absolutely no doubt of that. And I know I'm not projecting it because you can tell from behavior whether an organism likes being around you or not. I mean, I just described ways that octopuses have to, to show their displeasure. And that's the amazing part to me is that our brains are so different. Our lives are so different. We are social, long-lived animals. They are thought to be largely asocial and known to be very short-lived animals. And yet we both have acute intelligence that came about through obviously different roots. So I think of one of the major drivers of our own intelligence being the experiences that we have as we develop, and that, that if you don't have the right experiences, you won't develop the same potential of a human being. So for example, if you take a child and you don't expose them to language, ultimately they will not have the ability to learn language if you wait long enough. So if an octopus's life is relatively short, how do you think they become intelligent? Well, they kind of have to be. The the, this is not my idea. This is Jennifer Mather's idea that probably the thing that drove octopuses to be as, as a group of organisms very intelligent is that they lost the ancestral shell and they are programmed by nature to learn very quickly because one, without a shell – Everyone wants to eat them. Yum, yum. You know, you don't have to crunch through a hard shell. You can't hide in your shell. And two, losing that shell freed them to be hunters. So they have to figure out, one, how to avoid all of these predators, all different predators from birds to whales to fish. But also being predators themselves, they have to think, how am I going to catch that crab? How am I going to catch that fish? How am I going to open this difficult shell? And they're thinking about what the other creature might be thinking because they have so many different strategies for both hunting and getting away, escaping from predators. So I want to get back to the personality of the octopus and this idea that you can have bold arms and shy arms and what that means. I mean, you know, we think of, of octopuses as sort of having the cent I mean, when we anthropomorphize, a central self that controls all these wonderful limbs. But if each limb is sort of like a brain on its own and can have its own personality, you know, I'd like to sort of explore that idea a little bit. And, and let's start with talking about how do we know that they have bold arms and shy arms rather than a central intelligence that, you know, will make use of one limb versus another. Well, we don't know for sure that the arms have an outlook on life. Um, this comes from observations in the laboratory that sometimes when presented with a novel object, some arms will be going towards it while other arms will be kind of creeping away. So people don't really know how the arms feel, you know, in, in their – I mean, we, we, we can learn about sense of touch, but we don't know if the arms – have an emotional response. We do know, however, that the brain 
probably has an emotional response. And we know this because of the neurochemistry that is shared widely across taxa. Some of the hormones and neurochemicals uh, that, that humans have, every single one of them we've looked for in the octopus, we have found either exactly that same molecule or something extremely similar. And this addresses the, the question of anthropomorphism. Now, it is true, it's very easy to project onto others what we want them to feel. And this is the case with humans, as you know. If you've ever bought a present for someone that they hated or liked some guy who didn't want to go out with you at all, it's, it's easy to make that mistake and project onto others what we want. But that, that uh, octopuses do think and feel something, this seems very likely because the neurochemicals that accompany our emotional feelings are present in those animals. In fact, you think of oxytocin. This is one of those, those uh, chemicals that most people will be familiar with. It's called the cuddle hormone. I'm sure you've heard of it. And oxytocin is the thing that uh, causes mothers to fall crazy in love with their, with their babies and just feel like they are so precious and so cute and causes them to be fascinated with their own infant. When, in fact, you may have seen somebody else's baby and thought maybe they weren't quite as perfect or fascinating as your own. Well, there is a neurochemical in octopuses called cephalotocin because it is so similar to our oxytocin, it's almost indistinguishable. And yet, octopuses mostly don't get to raise their babies. They may be able to live long enough to use their siphon to push them, help push them out as they're hatching from their eggs, out from the lair into the ocean. But they don't raise their babies. And yet they still have this so-called cuddle hormone. So there are, I mean, there's a lot of other functions that oxytocin plays, even in the human, that goes beyond just this attachment idea. So I suppose it's possible that some of these other, you know, mechanisms are are, are there. Um, but I I am intrigued by this notion that, you know, that they form attachments, it seems, even, and they form opinions about people um, that suggests that this animal, which is in general thought to be socially isolated, um, can still form relationships. And and that's sort of one of the parts of your book that I found really fascinating. And so I want to get back to the Lethbridge uh, octopus psychologist or psychotherapist and ask you to tell us a little bit about the kind of work that she does and, and what she's discovered uh, about octopuses and their personalities. Well, she developed a personality test for octopuses that uh, I actually got to help administer when I worked with her and a, a team of wonderful octopus experts that she amassed, and we went down to Morea off Tahiti to kind of look into the minds of these mollusks. And what she was looking at for this particular study was to see if personality had anything to do with, with food choice. So how do you, how do you deliver a, a personality test to an octopus? Well, basically, you're ranking them from bold to shy. And you can imagine that a bold octopus will reach out and maybe touch you. 
Uh, if you if you touch it gently with a pencil, it might grab the pencil. A shy one will retreat back into its lair, or it might ink, or etc. So this was the kind of test that that you did when you first appeared. What did the octopus do um, as as you as you touched it? What did it do, etc. Uh, and um, She's also done a, uh, a number of studies to see what oct- octopuses recognize and remember. And I got to tell you, they are extremely distinctive in their personalities. And not only has Jennifer found this in the lab, but it's extremely well known in aquaria. At the New England Aquarium, where I did my work, um, everybody knew each individual octopus and knew how distinctive that personality was. At the Seattle Aquarium, you could tell by the names they gave the animals. I, I went out there for the octopus blind date one year, which was pretty great. But they had one named Lucretia McEvil because she constantly dismantled her tank. They had another they named Emily Dickinson. And they had to let her go because she was so shy she never came out from behind the filter. And then there was another guy they named Leisure Suit Larry. Because his arms were always all over you, and you'd peel one off, and two more would go on. So they're very distinctive in their personalities. And we saw this even in our very brief interactions with wild octopuses in Morea. There was um, there was one who's uh, we called her Mary Lou. We were naming them after people's mothers at one point. We'd already named them after people's dogs, and now we were moving into the mothers category. And Mary Lou was an octopus that we met towards the uh, the end of our days of the study. And this octopus had lost the tips of three arms in some altercation. But she was extremely bold and extremely curious. And when we met her, she was standing on top of a coral, and she led us around. I mean, she let us travel with her, and she reached out and touched me. And I kind of thought she was a super bold pirate queen of an octopus because here, you know, she'd lost not all that long ago the the tips of three arms. They can start regrowing the lost arms very quickly. A giant Pacific, I think, can, under the right circumstances, replace an arm in just a matter of weeks. And this was the Pacific Day octopus, so they can grow even more quickly. Anyway, despite this scary interaction with a predator— she wasn't afraid. Her curiosity totally overcame her fear. She wasn't aggressive at all because, you know, they can bite. Um, but she was just curious. And she kind of, it seemed, I had the feeling that she was experimenting with us because she would turn colors. She would change shape. It was almost like she wanted to see what we would do. And in Jennifer's experiments, she has seen that octopuses do this often with their prey items, that in order to make a prey item move to reveal itself, they'll change color or shape or do a display called the passing cloud display. This is only for certain prey items um, that makes the animal move and reveal itself so that they can see it more easily and seize it and eat it. So they're used to kind of psyching other organisms out. And I had the feeling this was what Mary Lou was doing with us, to see what we would do. 
And so one of the hallmarks of highly socially intelligent animals is that, that they can recognize themselves. So you know, you, you, I'm sure you know about the mirror test, which is this test that people give to animals where they you know, place some kind of a mark on the animal's forehead and then show them a mirror and they see whether the, the animal touches the mark on the mirrored image, which would indicate they don't recognize that that mark is actually on their own forehead or on themselves. And I know there are some problems with this this test in terms of like, for example, some primate species are overly aggressive. And if they look in the mirror, they just, you know, they're, they're so, in, you know, obsessed about displays, they don't even make eye contact enough to know <laughs> right, themselves, right? right? But, but is, has anyone done this mirror test with octopuses? Or do we have any sense of whether or not they have developed a theory of mind, a, a, you know, a, the idea that other beings have intentions and beliefs that might be different from their own? Well, the last stuff I read, octopuses failed the mirror test. They attacked the mirror um, or they were uh, you know, frightened by the mirror. They didn't realize that that was themselves. But as you point out, you know, mirrors are, are a very strange human construct and you know, it's no wonder that we brilliantly are able to recognize ourselves in the mirror and that other creatures uh, may not be able to recognize that. But – um, as far as having a, a sense of self versus other, it seems to me that to capture their prey, they have to have a theory of mind because they got to be thinking, what's this other creature doing? And not just for one species of creature, but for many species of creature, many different kinds of animals with different eyes, uh, different ways of apprehending the world. Um, Octopuses have been known to seize birds out of the sky, but birds also hunt them. They have been seen feeding on otters, and otters are very smart. Now, I don't know whether they were, you know, we can't tell. They didn't see an octopus kill and eat an otter, but an otter will certainly kill and eat an octopus. And so they've got to be able to decide, like, what's this critter doing and how is it reacting to me? Because look at the look at the plethora of reactions that they themselves can do in response to this. They can change color and shape, many, many, an infinite essentially number of colors and, and patterns. They can pour themselves into a crack. They can squirt ink and jet away. They can fight back. They can I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of things they can do, and they will try one thing after another as they're trying to capture their prey or escape their predator. So that to me is pretty evident that that is theory of mind. But what about something like deception, where they would, you know, if, is there any any stories or examples of behaviors that they would, you know, do that we would interpret as deceptive? Oh, all the time. I'm look. I'm a rock. Nope. I'm a coral. Nope. I'm a flatfish. Wait. I'm a bunch of sea snakes. Octopuses do this all the time. When they camouflage, they aren't just trying to look like their background. They're trying to look like anything that isn't an octopus. So you may have seen that fabulous video in which you're looking at just a glob of algae and then all of a sudden it blooms into a white octopus with black eyes and jets away. Have you seen that? Yeah. It's it's an awesome, awesome film um, made by Roger Hanlon at Woods Hole. But that's not all they do. They They don't 
always necessarily want to be invisible. Sometimes they want to deceive their predator or their prey into thinking that they are something else, not just hidden, but they want to be something else. The mimic octopus is particularly famous for doing this, and it mimics with its posture, its color, and its pattern looking like five or six different organisms that that we know of. Now, again, you know, that's according to our eyes, according to fish eyes or bird eyes or some other invertebrates' eyes, they may be able to do even, they may be able to mimic even more species. But yeah, they are the masters of deception. So I guess you, there. I think for some people, maybe seeing other animals that can camouflage themselves that we don't really consider to be particularly, you know, intelligent or volitional, you know, that's sort of the kind of deception I think is maybe a little bit borderline. But there is one story in your book that you talk about an octopus in an aquarium that, would, you know, go out at night and do something and then but make sure that they their human, uh, I don't want to give away too much and let you tell the story, uh, would would not notice right away what was happening. So do yeah, you know this? There okay. are many, many stories of octopuses sneaking out of their tank at night, going into another tank. This is usually at a public aquarium, then sneaking back into their own tank. Now, I, I heard one of these stories from uh, Scott Dowd, who's been at the aquarium since New England Aquarium opened. Uh, and I've heard it many, many times and read it other times at other places, them doing this. And uh, that, that completely blows my mind. Yeah, to the extent that they would like put the aquarium back, like they would, you know, put the roof back on so that they as if they knew that if they left it, the door open, you know, per se, that someone would notice. But if they made it put it back to what it was, people wouldn't know that they went out and had, you know, a feeding frenzy in the aquarium next door. Right. Well, often the way they get out is through little holes. You know, there'll be a little, there'll be a lid and there will be a hole allowing a pump to go in to the, into the tank and they can squeeze out of these tiny holes. So most of the time it doesn't involve removing the lid. However, Jennifer Mather has seen in the wild and many other, other uh, divers have seen this also that octopuses do create doors at times for their lairs. And they also will go out and, and get coconut halves and lug them back for a long ways. And clearly, they look like some tired commuter dragging their heavy suitcase or their heavy briefcase back home. And then they, they put that together to protect them from, you know, from predators. So, it is very possible that they are capable of closing a lid after themselves, although the stories that I have heard haven't involved actually closing the lid, but rather slithering back through a tiny hole. It's still kind of an amazing thing to think about this this octopus like climbing out of one tank and into another one. I don't know. It just <laughs> oh yeah. Well, they definitely do stuff um, to outwit you, and we experienced this. With Octavia, in, in one of my very early interactions with an octopus named Octavia, the second octopus that I got to know at the New England Aquarium. And I was there actually with a wonderful crew from Living on Earth, the environmental radio show. And 
We were all, there were a bunch of us there, and we were all stroking her and feeding her fish and watching her change color, and our hands were in the tank, and there were, gosh, more than five people standing around watching this octopus. We were having a great time, and we thought, oh, you know, let's give her another fish. So then we go to to hand her another fish, and we notice the bucket is gone. She stole it right out from under us. And she, by the way, did not eat the fish out of the bucket. She stole the bucket because she was interested in having the bucket. And who knows, maybe it was because she was interested in showing us that we don't have uh, any any claim on all the intelligence of the universe. We were outsmarted by a mollusk. <laughs> so that brings me to uh, what is probably my last question. And this is, you know, their nervous system is so different from ours. Their experience is so different from ours. Their lifespan, everything is so different. But what can we learn about ourselves from studying octopuses? I think the most important thing that human beings stand to learn at all right now is humility. And that's what they teach us. Simon Montgomery, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So do you have a deeper respect for octopuses? The octopi are an amazing set of creatures. I mean, so, you know, I asked that question off the top about uh, whether they could recognize things. They can look in a mirror? Uh, yes, but they don't, they attack the mirror. Yes, but I mean, at <laughs> least they can see things in the mirror. That's at least something. That's not yeah. what I expected. Well, I was just amazed at how, like, you know, really thinking about how they could recognize a face, you know, that's standing outside of their tank when they are inside the tank. I mean, I don't know. That just seems hard to me. I, it's still, I went to an, um, the Monterey Bay Aquarium and they have a huge exhibit on octopi. Yeah, right now. I saw that. I saw and, that. And um, what was interesting about it, I mean, they you can see the octopi in the tanks and, and whatnot, but they also had a set of exhibits on sort of the cultural ways that octopi have been represented in culture because it's been this fearsome creature and uh, ones that have been you know wrapped in mystery. And uh, I, I was wondering what, you know, after talking to Sai now and in your own personal experience with that weird guy at the museum, <laughs> where that's changed the way that you think about uh, octopi. It's absolutely changed the way I think about them. I, I really just kind of dismissed them. I didn't really understand them. And I, you know, they often that you just see a piece of a tentacle at the aquarium and that doesn't move. Right. So it wasn't particularly interesting to me. But at that exhibit in, in particular, I had read uh, The Soul of an Octopus before going to Monterey, and I was just fascinated with it. And, you know, I have to say the, the first stuffed animal that my son developed an attachment to is a big octopus. Oh, that's great. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your stories about octopuses or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by octopi lover, not octopus lover, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com. 
a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 